And I don't think your super users are going anywhere, regardless of what happens. Now, if there's some major policy where yes, moderation and censorship takes place, then I think that becomes a problem. But this is where Twitter thrives is that it is a free for all a lot of times for good or for worse. It is a very toxic place. But I do think there needs to be that next evolution. I think it's going to take time to do that. You can't You can't just say, hey, let me flip this switch and the entire ecosystem shifts. I think you have to kind of like sort the chafe and make sure that your core believers are still on board with the yeah. changes that you're doing like tangentially. What is up, everyone? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, powered by Waxman, where together twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of Bitcoin and cryptos, Web3, tech, really the world's most influential leaders to truly understand how these movements came to be. The movement that we've been focusing on are post 2008, 2009 world where Bitcoin was invented and then we saw the whole advent of crypto and all the technologies around that. Now we're seeing Web3 and AI and everything that's going on. And I'm really excited to have our guest on today, the Director of Digital Marketing over at Waxman, Benton Yan. Benton, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, Charlie, pleasure to be here. Really excited to dive into some stuff today. I know we're going to be touching on some, some uh, good topics about marketing, branding, Web3 space. What does that look like today in, in this constant evolving world? So definitely excited to get into it. You were the former chief strategy officer at Cointelegraph, former creative lead. You help build communities. You understand looking at projects and looking at different trends in, in our industry, like what's missing and things like that. So it's, it's really great. And now you help a lot of different companies in, in doing those same type of things. So there's like a bunch of different topics that I want to talk about. But I was a little bit dismayed this morning because I read an article in the Wall Street Journal that was like, metaverse is turning into the metaverse, like it's not that good. And I'm saying, I'm here doing this podcast five days a week. And I, I, and I guess the, the expectations of the world for us is so much greater than what, where we are right now. What, what, what's happening here, do you think? I, so I think there's like a, a little bit of a misalignment, right, about expectations versus the reality. Yeah. The metaverse is such a unique, I guess, niche right now because it's intersecting various industries from gaming to fashion to music, entertainment, sports, and they're all converging in this new arena. Um, yet there's no clear definition of like, what is this new arena? Are we sitting in the metaverse right now while we're on this, you know, on this call? Uh, um, one could argue that. So, like, I think that right now the mainstream, especially, is having trouble wrapping their head around the idea that the metaverse isn't just a single place. It's not a certain reality. It's multiple realities. It's different layers and levels of what is, you know, the future going to look like. So that's my kind of interpretation. Yeah, someone said to me a few weeks ago exactly what you're saying. They said. Look at whatever you're doing now, which is this doing this podcast, and we're doing it in a Web2 fashion. Microphones, we have Zoom, cameras, we, we have the technologies, the, the content delivery networks like Apple, Spotify that deliver the show. Then there's the editing processes and the cloud services where it gets uploaded. There's like so many different places that this content is going before it's being listened to the people that are listening in this moment, right? And someone explained that the metaverse as we know it 
is going to be basically that, but in a multiple sensatory experience. Or is it sensatory? I, I always screw up on that word because English <laughs> isn't my first language. I, I, you're exactly right. I, I think, I mean, because a lot of people I think may see it as like, oh, virtual reality, that's the metaverse. That's like one dynamic of it. It's going to be a completely immersive, multi-sensory, sensory, I guess, however you yeah. want to phrase that, of touch and feel and smell and your 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 insights, your thoughts, your whatever, your consciousness is going to be kind of like multi-layered in how you experience that. What did you do before getting into the industry? We were talking about a little bit and I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so I don't really have like your your traditional, I guess, like crypto or blockchain background. To me, I, I started out in children's sports and fitness, uh, graduated from college and, and became kind of an entrepreneur, helped run franchises down in Atlanta, teaching kids sports and fitness. And eventually I kind of got to the point where my career was evolving and I'm like, listen, I just like, I love this. This is great. But like, I want to kind of take the next step. And I was looking at entering real estate. And I then my friend told me about Bitcoin. And this was like back in 2017, during the pump of, of 2017, and then the later crash. And I was like, there's something here. And so what kind of led me into this world was I couldn't buy a house. I couldn't put a down payment down. I was yeah. like, but there's this thing. I think that that has, you know, intrinsic value called Bitcoin. And so that's kind of what led me down. And so I've grinded, I have hustled, I've worked for free, I've freelanced to just get my foot in the door to learn and absorb as much information as I could. And then eventually made the the move into full-time work, you know, moving, uh, working with Cointelegraph and, and now Waxman. What'd you do over at Cointelegraph? So as the, the former chief strategy officer, I was originally brought on as a social media manager. So at the time, uh, in, in 2020, they were building out their social media program. Um, I was a second hire of that department and started out very green. Um, I just knew I, I knew a lot about kind of the, the information and the news and was able to regurgitate that in a very kind of like easy palatable way, which is part of like, I think Cointelegraph's brand is, you know, they, they're positioning themselves as kind of the fund news source, but it's like your average everyday person can read and understand what they're doing. So that's kind of where I got my my feet set. And then as we were kind of doing that, this was during the, the explosion of DeFi on, on, for example, BSC, we started to notice that like other projects were like, we, they just needed marketing. They were just very yeah. popping up left and right. And that's where we decided to build out a, a digital marketing division within Cointelegraph, where we said, hey, these projects need our help. We're doing this work for Cointelegraph. Why not help other companies do the same thing? Uh, and that spurned the idea where I later kind of uh, evolved into the role of creative lead and then later chief strategy officer. We're seeing a lot of our programming build out and then the execution side of uh, strategic comms and, and digital marketing within the agency there. That's really, really interesting because by being investigative into the into the different parts of the industry, you're almost like saying to ourselves, wait, if we're identifying these problems, why can't we be part of the solution too? Exactly. And so that's kind of how that spawned uh, at the time. And a lot of people didn't know that that division even existed until you know months after we had helped out a lot of companies and they were like, hey, yeah, call these guys up. They can help you grow your, your online presence, your brand. Uh, and execute it for for different niches inside of crypto. It's very, very interesting. Speaking of like niches inside of crypto, it wasn't always this way. The the early Bitcoin community kind of focused around like the mailing list, IRC channels, and a Bitcoin forum. 
you can almost argue that during the block size war that kind of took place in 2016, around the same time that you were joining the community, a lot of people look back at that and they, they don't realize that it wasn't just about raising the block size limit, but it also was about power of the Bitcoin community at the time. That's what it was more about. And it was actually the community of Bitcoin that saved Bitcoin from being taken over. It was, it's a whole thing. The point is that the, the Bitcoin subreddit became like weaponized and mm -hmm. it was being accused of like being censored and all the, the moderators and the administrators and everything. But the, the subreddit of, of our Bitcoin at the time had like 90% market share of the whole crypto community. That's where everyone was. So if you wanted to announce something, that's where you could, because there was so much content feeding into it, the content at the top of Reddit was always the best and current and most engaging and what everyone wanted to, and everyone had talked within the, the comments there. Because that was so weaponized, you know what happened in 2017 was people realized that they needed to control their own communities. Because before then, companies wouldn't launch their own Discord channels or even Skype rooms or Telegram rooms at all. That didn't happen until 2017. It was one community meeting place. Maybe this is because Bitcoin and crypto grew up and stuff like that. And then eventually, like, people were hanging out in the Ripple forums and the Ethereum forums and Cardano forums of the early days. That's where, like, a lot of the action was. So I guess it's, it was meant to happen. But now you had this, like, thing of, like, people had to build their own communities. And honestly, that scares a lot of people who want to build crypto companies today is they have this new thing that's like, hey, if you want to start like an apparel company to sell bathing suits, yeah, you have to have a social media presence, but you don't have to have a community. But if you have a token, mm -hmm. you have to have a lightly moderated, maintained kosher community. And what does that mean for people? Like, it's a scary thing. I think it is. I, I, but the interesting, I, I think if you zoom out for a second, is I think the 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 courage and how brave someone has to be nowadays to put themselves out there and say, hey, I'm creating this idea, this concept, and I, I want to bring it to life. I mean, yeah. I, I think it's I, I think it's interesting. Um now when it comes to that that aspect of of the community and building that out, I think it's it's it can be a huge undertaking. It is a full-time job building your community, not only the development of your product, but the community itself, nurturing it, growing it. Uh, maintaining it, curating it, because I, I think what we're seeing a lot of the times today is kind of these raiders that come in and, oh, we want the airdrop, and they're not the organic community. So there's a difference between growing a community and then growing an organic community, which I think uh, is a really big difference in in the success of projects. Yeah, it really is. And, and putting my VC hat on, when we look at projects that we're going to invest in from a very early stage, it's not a numbers game especially when you're raising money for an early company. It's a numbers game when you're like trying to be the number one project on CoinMarketCap or whatever. In the beginning, a lot of the early people that will help you in your project, they just want to see like that you've built out the skeleton that you can scale it. And, and I want to ask you what apps those are, but I'm going to leave off like with the listeners that a lot of the times just getting a hundred people, like your friends and family inside like a Discord channel. And what are some other ones and, and how do people start them? Yeah. Uh, so I think, as you probably know, crypto lives and breathes on Twitter. Twitter um, of course. <laughs> and I would say Reddit is kind of a third, uh, a third platform. But I think it's really important to understand who are you trying to target. So for example, if you are in the metaverse space, and you're trying to target large brands, partnerships, uh, executives, 
to be able to partner with, then that's going to be LinkedIn. So I think it's important to understand, you know, the Twitters, where, why are you using that tool? Uh, the biggest thing I see nowadays is, is companies want to be on every single platform. It, it's like, you don't need to be on every single platform because your audience is only on two or three. So it's Twitter, it's LinkedIn, it's Reddit. If you're in the NFT space, maybe it's an Instagram or TikTok gaming space. I might recommend that as well. Um, but then it's about creating quality, uh, for example, around newsletters or mediums. If you're a developer, those people want a, a technical information. They want tutorials. They want in-depth uh, like research and data. So it, it's understanding your audience and then building out your platforms based around where those audience members are. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Almost like create your own newsletter for your friends powered by whatever brand that you're starting. And that's a good way to like provide some value to people that you want them to join your community. 100%. It's about quality over quantity at first, like you said earlier. You have to get those core believers. You're turning the mercenaries into the missionaries because those people are going to be the ones that you know go around and tell their friends about your company, your product, your brand, why it's so great. You want the, the buy-in from those original people that are, are getting into your project early. I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup, and he told me that the future belongs to the fearless, and that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates and following along. If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence, and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations, financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs, they're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges that we all are going to face and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are going to love them. We have them in the show notes. Check it all out. It's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. That's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. Okay, so you you actually make me think of an interesting topic. So I was talking to my friend about why the in, independent film market is not the way it used to be. Like, there's a huge gap between independent films are either made for like under a million dollars or you have some fi studio financing or something and you can make like something between two and five million. But basically the death of the DVD was a big part of it because when you had the DVD, it enabled a filmmaker or a studio or whoever was financing a movie to know that when someone watches something the first time in the theater, they're going to go out and buy the DVD. You can sell them twice. And the DVD is what, when you saw that, and really the CD was, a, was the origination of that for music, but that enabled signed merchandise and different type of other economic revenue streams for, for brands. And what it enabled them was to tap into what you alluded to is this thing called the super fan. And mm -hmm. the super fan is really the, the, the folks that are supporting you that is like your army out there. It's not the millions of millions of people. It's like the less, the 1% or the super fans. And if you have a way to like tap into them somehow, that's when your brand or your whatever you're doing can make a lot of money. 
Elon Musk, like he's, we, we, you and I live on Twitter, right? We're on every single day. We've seen the rise and falls of brands on Twitter. We've seen the rise and fall of people. We've seen things. Twitter has become its own like medium in and of itself. Do you think Elon Musk saved Twitter? I mean, he still hasn't been able to capture that super fan, but he somehow moderated censorship. Like, what do you, what do you feel? That's it. I mean, it's been the burning question, right? Over the last, I guess, three, four or five months. But you're a um, super user. I, exactly. I'm not going anywhere. I, I And I, I don't think your super users are going anywhere, regardless of what happens. Now, if there's some major policy where, yes, moderation and censorship takes place, uh, then I think that becomes a problem. But this is where Twitter thrives, is that it is a free-for-all a lot of times, for good or for worse. It is a very toxic place. Um, but I do think there needs to be that next evolution. I think it's going to take time to do that. You can't You can't just say, hey, let me flip this switch and the entire ecosystem shifts. I think you have to kind of like sort the chafe uh, and make sure that your core believers are still on board with the yeah. changes that you're doing like tangentially. I guess the way he's been able to do that is by just be a super user himself on Twitter. And he realized it's the only way. And that's probably why he realized he's the best person for the job because he's the most super user there ever was on, on Twitter. It's like, you could almost argue that Donald Trump could have made a good Twitter CEO in a way, in a way, you know, I'm going to get letters now, but just because he was <laughs> yeah. such a super user, you can ask me. Right. Like, like a lot, that's why he, I, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, I, I mean, if, you're, if you want to have a flamboyant, you know, personality and say whatever you want that comes to your mind, then you sign, sign up for the CEO of Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> are there any products or services that are missing in our space that people haven't started yet or aren't building enough of? I'm trying to figure out where the holes are. Yeah. Uh, so I think the biggest gaps that that we're seeing is, is solid copywriting. Um, now, with the recent rise of AI, that's a tool that every expert within digital marketing needs to get to know and know very, very well, whether that's SEM, whether that's paid, whether that's uh, assisting cleaning, you know, your blog writing, uh, creating quality Twitter threads. That is a tool that I think is going to start to fill a lot of these gaps uh, where the content itself that's being curated is going to get a lot more hyper-targeted uh, to certain niches. Because the biggest mistake that I'm seeing you know, companies online, for example, Twitter, is they're speaking at people, they're not speaking with their community. Um, and so being able to leverage tools like AI to better understand your audience and leverage uh, different things and automations, that's going to help that process, uh, I think, really over the next six to 12 months. I've been using chat GPT. I had a fight with it a few days ago, but now we're talking again. As long as I don't get into personal questions with chat GPT about <laughs> myself, then we're okay. It's it's an extremely valuable tool. I think uh, if you want to get personal with it, though, I haven't gone there. Uh, so I haven't tried out the, anything personal with it yet. I'm scared. Especially if there's a history of yourself on the internet where it, it's scraped. You can start, it starts to, you can start, you feel like you're talking to someone who knows too much about you. And it's, uh, I wonder if like <laughs> Seth Rogen sitting out there or someone like talking to, talking to GPT about themselves. It's it's not fun. <laughs> it's They're very jaded and, and mean. I was going to say, I, I could only imagine uh, some, of the, some of the conversations that have already transpired with the, with yeah. the, uh, the AI bots. <laughs> I had a great conversation yesterday with our guests about how if we have an incentive layer on AI and we have more transparency around the algorithms 
I think it could be a very, very powerful tool. And there isn't a good open source GPT, like I, a good one. I want to have a good, I have a good, really good idea, but I want to build it using like some sort of open source GPT, but doesn't really exist yet. So there's that too. But there's so many businesses that could launch now that could do it. Yeah, I, I, 100% on that one, because imagine if you could integrate in, you know, in open source AI with, for example, a high throughput blockchain where it's providing transparency, uh, where you're getting everything stored uh, in a transparent way, but then also you're able to get insights about the different algorithms that it's executing on. Because I think when we kind of like take that and extrapolate to social media, a lot of people just don't understand the algorithms and how they work. So the, I think the more transparency that you're able to provide by leveraging, you know, blockchain tech, like you're going to be able to to see a lot more, um, I guess, clarity around how yeah. how to actually use the tools. Are you focusing on messaging where it's like you're you're talking about the product and the service, and then you're almost talking to a non-crypto audience where you have to like prove that the reason blockchain even exists is worth it within the scope of the company itself. Like you have to like, you have two jobs. You have to like convince the user of the company, but also convince the user of blockchain too. It's it's an interesting position, I think, for every brand. And every brand has kind of a, a unique case because it depends on how far along you are on the spectrum. Yeah. My kind of like overall thesis is like, if you look back at Web2, and where was the mass adoption? It was at the app layer, the Facebooks, the YouTubes, et cetera. I think the same thing is going to happen with Web3. It's going to happen at the DAP layer where your, your mainstream audiences are going to get engaged with blockchain tech without even knowing it because they're engaging with a, a DAP. And, and so when you're when you're kind of like positioning yourself as a brand, you are having to, to speak to the audience to show them, hey, we understand you. And not just like, hey, I'm here to sell you a product. I want to show you how great it is. Show me how your your product, your service, your idea or vision is going to make my life easier. And as an audience member, if I'm a developer, show me how my you know my code's going to get sharper, or I can spin up something way faster or more efficiently. If I'm a retail user, show me how this is going to make my investing you know life way easier. That's kind of my take on on messaging when it comes from a brand. What if you have to tell these companies something that they don't want to hear? Because a lot of the times they don't have those answers. They don't know those answers. Well, that's why uh, Waxman Digital is here to help you with that. I think at the end of the day, the big things that I'm seeing right now is is brand narrative is is huge. And you have to dial in on that when you're building out your foundation of your company. Uh, and then speaking to your audience, whether it's engaging on replies and comments on Twitter, getting a reply in, in a comment on Twitter as a brand and you're doing that to your community, like that's showing, I, I know when I, that happens to me, like I replied to Wendy's the other day and, and got like a reply from Wendy's. I was like, oh my God, this is the greatest feeling ever. So the more you're able to build that organic engagement and then solidify your brand narrative, I think those are two big components to, to really building out your brand. That's like a, such a, such a huge part of it. And, and a lot of people really struggle with that because well, frankly, even understanding crypto to, to the extent that you can do things, it's like you have to go full decentralization. Sometimes you want to like just go follow through and see what the community wants from you. You have this idea and then you, you get people excited about it. And a lot of the times people will give you a lot of input and you're going back and making changes and stuff like that. But isn't that technically what a community is? It shouldn't be a one-sided thing. 100%. Yeah, I, I think... 
it takes a lot of feedback at first when you're launching a new idea, a concept, a product, uh, and, and brand. And you have to get that feedback from those individuals, whether they're friends, other community members inside of a Discord or a Telegram. Like that's important feedback, especially in those early stages, so that you can have the confidence to be like, hey, I'm on to something here. And then you have to start with conviction and then move from there. Okay. So so we we have a we have these companies, we have these these new projects that are coming into the space and you guys between you and the different accelerator programs and like kind of the mentors and the teachers, the guiders, the, the, the Sherpas to make sure that the products, the next generation of infrastructure in our space is good and strong with good foundations and, and doing it all the right way. So I, I get all that and I'm following through with all that. We're setting up all the different applications where we can grow our community we have all the different messaging layers right now. Where, other than like Twitter and podcasts, where else is the, are there these other communities right now? And we kind of talked about a little bit earlier. Where, where else is everyone? I, so I think it depends on, again, the niche that you're in. If you're going to be a, you know, a, a developer or a game programmer, builder, I think you're likely on you know, a Discord server uh, with other folks like that, you're in Reddit subreddits. Um, you're constantly kind of evolving and in, in changing your your skills and evolving your skills in those arenas. Now, if you're more of an investor and you're looking for you know different projects, you're probably on Twitter. I would say Instagram and, and TikTok are two emerging platforms because of the visual nature yeah. of both and and how that algorithm works. It's going to skew you towards more of a mainstream audience. So if you're a gaming company. I think you're going to want to position yourself on those particular platforms. If you're L1, L2, you're probably likely going to be starting out on Twitter as well. But I would say everything starts from building on Twitter and Twitter and. A lot of people try to go full DAO. What do you mean by that? Well, they try to like say that they want to take their whole community out of these physical places and and bring them onto like these open source applications where everything's on a smart contract and they can control. I mean, that's like the next level. We talked about metaverse, but all of these applications that we talked about, we don't own those customers. We don't own those users. Mm -hmm. Discord has them or Twitter or Instagram. So there has to be a way for us to go the next level. I, I think it's going to be interesting. I know, you know the platform Mastodon is uh, a decentralized version of Twitter. It has a huge tech and gaming community that lives and breathes on there. I think that does have a lot of potential depending on the, the rise or demise of, of Twitter here in the, in the coming years. So it will be, I think decentralization will be an integral part of the future. Uh, but ultimately, those big social media networks are going to kind of own yeah. their, their communities and audiences for the foreseeable future. Well, Benton, thank you so much for, for taking the time and coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Everyone's going to like frivolously writing notes here, but we'll have <laughs> all the notes and everything after later on that we'll put out there. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for, uh, for having me on today. <laughs>